Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks again for being here. Uh, if you missed it at the beginning, my name is David Maroos. I'm the pastoral intern here at Embassy Church. As we begin this morning, would you go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to the letter of 2 John? This will be found on page 962 of your Black Pew Bibles, right in between 3 John and right after 1 John. It's the second smallest book of the Bible, so I understand if you have trouble missing it. But as you turn there, I want you to think, have you ever heard someone in a conversation, maybe an unbeliever, and you're telling them about Jesus, you go, well, that's just your truth. It's not my truth. I'm really happy that works for you. How about when you are walking by a house or seeing a window on a store, the sign that says, love is love. Today and in the coming weeks, we are going to dive into our sermon series of the letters to, uh, from John entitled, or titled, Old Letters with New Life. And I believe in these letters, we are going to see that John communicates clearly what the truth is and what love truly means. Our society is communicating various degrees of this teaching of truth and love. They want you to think differently, see the world differently. But to understand these two important truths and virtues of truth and love, we must look to God's word. So let's look to the God's word now and read First John or Second John, starting in verse one. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the word that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing anything new, no new commandment, but as the one we have received from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have heard or what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greets you. 
This is God's holy and inspired word, profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. And my prayer for you is that he would inscribe it onto your hearts by the power of his spirit. Amen? Now I've titled today's sermon, Walking in the Path of Truth and Love. As we journey on this path of life and in the path of the Christian life, there are many ideas that are going to fight for your trust and affection. Sometimes these ideas come in deceptive ways. They appear close to the truth on the outset. But when you begin to walk down this path, you're going to quickly realize its way is destructive. If you've ever read John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, I want to remind you of Christian, the main character's number one temptation throughout the entire book. It's to stray off the path. Straying from that path to the heavenly city for an easier path to get there with less trials. Now, if you never read this book, well, first, you should. <laughs> one, because it's one of the best-selling Christian books or just books in general of all time. Next to the Bible, no other book has sold more copies. Also, the book is an allegory to the Christian life, and I believe no matter where you are in your Christian journey, you will find yourself within this story. The premise of this book is that a man named Christian leaves his home and family from the city of destruction, and in order to remove this heavy burden off his back, which represents sin, per the advice of a great man named Evangelist, this man directs Christian towards this path, where he will find his burden removed and where he will face many trials and temptations to get to his final destination of the celestial city. Evangelist not only points Christian in the right direction, he shows up again and again in the story, reminding Christian the way to go and the paths to avoid. I imagine the Apostle John to be playing a similar role of that of Evangelist. For he is writing to an early first century church, encouraging them to love one another by walking in truth and love. While at the same time, he's warning this church to not follow the direction of deceivers. To put it most simply, to state my big idea today that we find in the letter of 2 John, I believe John is teaching us how to walk in the path of truth and love and how to watch out for the path of deception. Put it differently, Second John teaches us the path to walk in and the path to watch out for. I'm going to break down today's message in two points. Point one, we are to walk in the path of truth and love. And point two, we are to watch out for the path of deception. To begin our first point, point one, found in verses one through six, walk in the path of truth and love. John begins in verse 1, giving a customary greeting of his time, which we would know during the late first century. If you look down at the text, it reads, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, but not I only, also all who know the truth. Now, right, reading this book in the introduction, you might think, this kind of sounds cryptic. Who is the elder? 
Who's this lady we're talking about? How come she's elect? So let me provide you with some context. The elder of this letter was likely to be written by the Apostle John. Why we should believe this is because of the many similarities we find between 2 John and all the letters of John and John's Gospel. For example, all these writings explore the ideas and themes of truth, love, abiding, light, and various other examples. The term elder not only is referring to John's old age, it's referring to his position within the church. Hence, part of the reason why we call our elders, elders. It's possible that John, as he's writing this letter, is one of the only remaining apostles left, nearing death, which would make 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John some of the oldest letters written in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible. So who is this elect lady that John is writing to? The elect lady with her children should refer, you should think of it as a lady or the church. This elect lady is a local church and her members, the members of that church. While 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John should be understood from the broadest audience to the narrowest, we go 1st John looking to multiple churches, the letters to be passed around church to church. The second letter, as we find ourselves in today, is a singular church, possibly a cover letter to 1st John. And 3rd John, as Nate preached about last week, is written to an individual. Going from the broadest audience to the smallest. The concept of the truth draws from the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. And to love in accordance with the truth means that Christians are to love one another in a manner that is consistent with the example that Christ demonstrated for us when he gave his life for us. This is why John is writing to us to reveal the path of truth and love. John ends his brief introduction in verse 3 by stating grace, mercy, and peace will be with you or with us from the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and truth and love. John here ex- extends a triple blessing. He encourages them in grace, mercy, and peace. And I think one of the commentators states it best when he says the relationship between these three ideas. Grace is doing God doing for us what we do not deserve. Mercy is not is his not doing to us what we do deserve. And peace is God giving us what we need based upon his grace and mercy. God's grace is always prior. Mercy and peace flow from it. The beauty is that that these blessings come from both the Father and the Son, who John here places upon equal standing, yet mentions their distinct personhood. Though the Spirit's never mentioned in 2 John directly, John's description of a life that abides in the truth reveals the active work of the Holy Spirit. And only by the Spirit we are able to hold fast to the commands of love and walking in the truth. 
A life abiding in the truth reveals active work of the Spirit, and by him we have helped to hold fast to these commandments of our Savior to love. Now look down at verse 1 and 3, closing out in verse 3, John repeats this idea of truth and love, as he did in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, whom I love in truth, then verse 3 says, in truth and love. So he's preparing the recipients of this letter for the main theme that he wants to impress on his hearers. The elder gives us an example of how to maintain a healthy and growing community. The church must demonstrate a devotion to the truth that knows no compromise and a love that has no limits. Friends, grace, mercy, and peace will flourish with the church that prevails in truth and love. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is whether or not Embassy Church prevails in truth and love. Since my aim of the first point is to show what it means to walk in the path of truth and love, let me give some explanation to both ideas of truth and of love. This will come from my first, in my first point in verses 4 to 6. In the entirety of this letter, John writes to the church with the assumption they know what these ideas mean. So, as we do, as we think in our culture today, we hear, your truth is your truth, but how are you going to respond to the person who says this? Firstly, what is truth? Even though truth is not given a lengthy definition defined in 2 John, it's clear from John's gospel that he believes truth is not a series of statements or beliefs. Truth is defined by, is not defined by propositions, but a person when God reveals the truth through the incarnation of his son. We see this in John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. Thus, truth is the Son of God. Becoming man in the flesh, who was born of a virgin, claiming the boldest truth claim of all time. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, by living a perfect, sinless life, dying on a criminal's cross, buried in the ground, and after three days, rising from the grave, and then ascending to the right hand of the Father, where he currently dwells bodily, waiting to return on earth and restore all things in proper order, that is truth. It is the gospel. Therefore, the incarnate Son himself is the truth that unites us to God. So then Christ not only paves the way to truth, but he is the path of truth. The path of truth demonstrates the ultimate display of love for all time. He sacrificed for himself for our eternal good to be united to the Father forever. Though the world screams for you to define your truth and my truth by looking inward to yourself, God's word is clear, and it reveals that there is only the truth, not your truth. If you're listening today and knew this Christianity thing, you must know that defining truth is 
Bible basics. It's Christianity 101. Truth is not internally discovered. Rather, it's external and outside of us. We do not look in ourselves for truth, but we must look up to the resurrected Savior as the supreme standard of truth. If defining the truth is Christianity 101, let's move to Christianity 102 and define love. How do we define love? Point two, we define love in the light of truth. If we're journeying on this path towards a heavenly kingdom, then love must be distinguished, a distinguishing mark of Jesus' pilgrims. Walking on this path requires us to respond with love for God. That must be you, Embassy Church. Are you marked out and distinguished by biblical love? Biblical love requires that the truth be a prerequisite of love. And it is possible to love God and not love one another. Impossible. If you don't love your brother, you do not love God. This is because John is teaching that about love that derives from his master and teacher, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' command to take points of departure from the Mosaic commands found in Deuteronomy, as Matt read for us this morning. Jesus commands that we should love the Lord with all of our power, our being, all of our heart. And love one neighbors as oneself. This means that Jesus' own love for us and his teaching to deepen and transform the commandments of Deuteronomy all culminate in a love that lays down one's life for his friends. Love is, hear me most plainly, love is sacrificially laying down my own life for another's eternal good. Sacrificially laying down my own life for the other's eternal good. John's first exhortation to this church is for them to love one another. We see this in verses 4 to 6. It says, I rejoice greatly to find some of you and your children walking in the truth, just as we are commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is, the, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is his commandments, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John's reminding his readers of nothing new. Rather, he reminds them of the command they have heard from the beginning of their Christian walk. Just as Jesus clearly taught his disciples, friends, we must love one another. And if we are walking the truth, I believe a beautiful illustration of this idea of the command to walk in truth is a picture of two images. Think of a social media post, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want. And the caption on it says, love is that we walk according to his commandments. So picture one. This first picture is of the Christian community holding hands as they walk down a path together. This symbolizes our acting out of Christ's new commandment, what John's community would have heard from the beginning, and that is the oral proclamation of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Picture two, same title, love is that we walk according to his commandments. 
It's a picture of the Christian community holding hands as they walk down this path together. But not just holding hands, they're lifting them up to God. It's a picture of worship, and most often in the New Testament, a picture of love is of adoration through obedience. So we do this together. We're on this journey to walk in truth and love with one another. Practically, love is sacrificially laying down one's life for others' eternal good. This should be how it plays out in our community. So the litmus test to see if you're walking in this commandment from John is to ask, am I sacrificially laying down my life for others' eternal good? Elders, do you ask this in regards to the needs of your church? Spouses, do you ask this when you get home from a long day of work to the joyful chaos of your family? Is this the mindset when you come to church each week? How can I lay down my life for my friends? So, if this is love, we must note what love is not. Love is not acceptance without truth. Love is not being unwilling to change or challenge someone's understanding of truth. Love is not refusing to label wrong as wrong. Love is not love. Love is biblical, agape, love. Every time we choose to love, we are laying down our lives to the other's eternal good. And every time we choose to love others, we will direct them to the truth, the one who ultimately did this for our behalf. This is why John's writing this brief letter. He claims that love is walking in the commandments to love one another and that we must walk in it. Verse 6, that we must walk in it. But what does it refer to? What are we walking in? I believe the best understanding is that John not only uses it to refer to the commandments of love, but also walking in the truth. He wants us to walk in the truth and love. Love without truth cannot truly be love. This is why John wants them to know the path of truth and love, and the only when they know Will they know what is the correct path they'll ever be able to do? When they know what the correct path is, is when they will know how to identify the counterfeit paths to avoid. Which is leading to me to today's second point. Watch out for the path of deception in verses 7 through 13. Point two, watch out for the path of deception. The threat to this church was the heart of the letter. John was writing this letter for this reason, giving them two explicit commands found in the second half of the letter. If you see in verse 8, it says, watch yourselves. And then look down at verse 10. Do not receive him. John is emphasizing the need to watch out for those in the world leading Christians astray and that churches must be inhospitable to such people. Let's read it again. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not know, confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We see here that the path of deception is paved by many deceivers who have gone out into the world and that denying that Jesus Christ ever came in the flesh. Notice the passage communicates using a plural noun, which means they're not only one antichrist, but there are many. An antichrist is a person who is against the Lord. They're assuming the guise of a Christian teacher, but are actually enemies of Christ. These teachers left their churches, but did not stop the teaching. John calls them deceivers, which refers to the actions of deception. But the term antichrist shows that their teachings were anti or against Christ. Do you remember our second scripture reading this morning that John Whipple wrote? Or read for us today? When it says, the Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son. First John is the only instance that the term Antichrist appears in all of Scripture. It clearly states there are many who deny Jesus Christ. So, John's not attempting to make a prophetic declaration about the next president or political leader of the United States, Russia, North Korea, who will be this end times anti-Christ. The idea of the antichrist does not come from either second or first John. It comes from those who interpret Revelation in a certain way. So my aim is not to talk about that idea of the end times antichrist coming from revelation using a different term we're to look at what the letters of john communicates and the letter of second john is communicating that the antichrist is anyone who attempts to deceive us from the path of truth perhaps uh, an example of an antichrist in our day would be a false teacher like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn. For they lead people off the true path through their preaching of a false gospel, something that appears to be truth, but when you walk down the path, you realize it's not. But it doesn't have to be a giant celebrity within our culture. It could be on a smaller scale in smaller churches. Be someone that's not affirming that Jesus Christ came in the body it could be someone that's just trying to get you, to lead you into sin. Maybe it's a friend of yours who's less left the Christian path and has become a skeptic and they're trying to become and get you to fall into their cloud of doubt. Maybe you're a high schooler or almost high schooler like you, Andrew. <laughs> and they're trying to get you to defy your parents' and what they've taught you about the truth. They're trying to teach you that Jesus isn't the Christ. They're also telling you, just try it. It'll be fun. Or it could be a husband who attempts to rationalize his immoral choices despite his covenantal vows to his wife as he begins to redefine truth for himself by looking inward but not looking to Christ's teaching. Friends, an antichrist is one who is leading you from the path of truth, leading you into deception and away from the teaching we've heard from the very word of God. 
Jesus Christ. This is explaining why John is telling us to watch out for these deceivers, that this elect church may not lose what they have worked for. What they have worked for is none other than to know and serve Jesus who gives all who believe in him eternal life. Let's use Pilgrim's Progress again. Do you remember what I said Christian's number one temptation is? It's to stray off the path. So Christian, not only not very far into his journey down this heavenly si- to this heavenly city, he encounters a man named Worldly Wiseman. This man suggests that Christians should not travel along the way to the heavenly city, but instead he should go up to the hill and stray off the path to the city of morality. In this city, he'll find the help he needs to remove this heavy burden of sin. And as he's on his way to the city of morality, he realizes quickly he's made a huge mistake. So as he realizes this big mistake, he grew in fear and disappointment, trying to stumble back to the right right path. At this time, it says he saw evangelists walking his way. Evangelist asked Christian, do you know what, to, what I told you, where to tell you to go? Where are you going? Evangelist asked, and Christian did not know what to say, so he said nothing. Evangelist continued, aren't, aren't you Christian? The man I pointed away from the city of destruction towards the heavenly city? Christian dared not look up. He said, yes, I'm he. I'm sorry. If Christian would have watched out and not received advice from the worldly wise men, he would never have risked forfeiting his final reward for the celestial city. Thankfully, evangelist pointed him back on his way towards the heavenly city. And if we are faithful to stay on this path, our reward will be like Christians. Upon the path of truth, the final destination is the beautiful celestial city where Jesus has gone in the flesh to prepare a way for us. Verse 9 reveals to us that we have a choice either to accept false teaching of deceivers or continue in the footsteps of our Savior. Which are you going to choose? Will you embrace what is false and no longer abide in the teaching of Jesus Christ? Are you going to moralize your sinful patterns? Or are you going to walk faithfully holding hands with Christian community towards our Savior? The consequence of rejecting truth is to sever a relationship with God and his people. The proof of perseverance is to remain faithful, to remain on the path of truth and love. To stay with Christ through your entire life is the clearest evidence that you belong to Christ. To cling to him and him alone is the most certain and only path to receive all that God has promised to you at the moment of salvation. Our task is then is to stay vigilant and on guard towards those who are against this path. We must walk on this Christian pilgrimage and stand with Christ, which proves that we truly belong to him. 
This is why it's vital for all of us to collectively not receive one who's gone down the path of deception. Look at verse 10 and 11 again with me. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, you might be thinking, is John communicating here that we should be inhospitable to non-Christians? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Remember, John is communicating that to an individual, not to an individual, but to an entire church. John is attempting to protect the church and what he is teaching. It's actually the same, it's the same coin that Nate was preaching last week, but just a different side. Last week, he said we need to be faithful to support those of gospel work. This week, John is communicating we need to deny those and support of those who are denying Christ, who are unfaithful to gospel truth. We do not receive him into the house or give him any Christian greeting to such person. I believe if anyone does not agree with the truths found in the Bible, or a good example would be the Apostles' Creed, or the basic tenets of the gospel, you can be sure that a person's doctrine will lead others down the path of deception. To deny these deceivers protects the whole church. Imagine if a Mormon missionary came to Phil Howell's door one day and goes, <coughs> Phil opens the door, Oh, hello, it's good to see you. Come on in. Invites him into his home, feeds them, hears about it. Oh, the next day, Sunday, brings in the breakfast fellowship hour, gives, allows him to share testimony, and then feels like, guys, I think we need to support this missionary in the work he's doing. In fact, he even goes on to let this missionary preach that Sunday. I really hope all of us would have a few choice words of feedback for him and we should rightly be wondering, what on earth are you doing, Phil? <laughs> In a similar way, John is communicating here that these churches must not support from those who are teaching quasi-similar or quasi-Christian beliefs. It comes down to a level that we must not accept anyone into membership who does not fully affirm the gospel and trust wholly in Jesus Christ. We must summarize what John is teach we could summarize what John is teaching by saying that in order for us to be loving to all, we must be inhospitable to some. To be loving to all is to be inhospitable to some. This not only helps us personally to stay off the path of deception, but protects God's flock. What would happen if we accepted these teachings of the deniers of Christ coming in the body found in 2 John? As I was meditating upon the question this week, why is it important that Jesus came bodily? What would we even lose if he didn't come in the body? Christian, if you lose Jesus coming into the body, Coming to the earth, you lose the significance of why he came at all. Do you realize that without Jesus being in the born, born in the likeness of sinful flesh, his death on the cross would account for nothing? 
his death on the cross would account for nothing. For if he had not experienced the trials and temptations of the sin, then he would not be able to sympathize with your weaknesses. Because Jesus lived sinlessly in the body to the point of death, doing what no other man could do. He became this innocent, spotless lamb sacrificed upon our behalf. Without the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no gospel. As the early church father Athanasius said, Jesus became what we are that he might make us what he is. Jesus coming reveals us to the Father. Through his life, he revealed the glory of the Father, glory that is full of grace and truth. He came back to make known to us the ultimate source of truth. Like like in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, by Christ's grace, had his burdens removed from his back as he approached the cross. To think that just the sight of the cross could remove anyone's burdens, anyone's sin, and give him peace. To come to Christ, the truth, and know that you have ultimate peace, grace, mercy, and peace. For this is our reality Hope in the work of Jesus on the cross. Friends, if you do this, your sins are forgiven. It enables you to walk on this path of truth and love and do so faithfully. Because his body was broken and his blood was shed, he's conquered all sin and death. Because he rose from the grave and after three days rose bodily. Because he ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father, and now physically seated with him as a perfect mediator on your behalf. Because of his bodily second coming, we know there's importance for his body because he's doing what we could not. We can conquer, know that he has conquered the path of deception never once tempted to fully go down it. He saw it, but kept walking. He was faithful on this path of truth and love. He overcame the temptations of the flesh and the temptations of the deceiver. For this reason, we can trust that this path, his path, will lead us to the Father forever. John also ends his letter with the hope that we will one day come and see this beautiful savior face to face we'll do this not alone but as a church john knows he's going to come to this church in second john this elect lady and it's going to make his joy complete his joy will be full when he's able to teach them correct their steps help them on the path of truth and love once again our hope is similar that we may see the glory of the Son face to face. And when it happens, it will bring our joy to completion. What better news? Our hope is like our friend Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress when he approached the heavenly gate and the angel said to him, you are going now to the paradise of God where you'll see the tree of life and eat the never-fading fruit 
When you arrive, you'll be given white robes and you'll walk and talk with the king every day throughout all eternity. Then the king commanded the gate to be open and declared, the righteous nation keeps the truth, that keeps the truth may enter in. This is our hope, to walk and talk with the king every day for all of eternity. Embassy Church, walk in truth and love, and this will be your reality. May our hearts long for the end of this path. Would we be faithful to journey upon it, avoiding all paths of deception? Let's pray to this end. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we come now asking you, the source of all truth and love, to help us love. Would you, O oh God, teach us to help set our eyes upon Jesus, teach us the importance of what it means to walk in his path. Set our gaze upon Jesus, Lord, not being tempted to follow the ways of deceivers. Guard us, Lord, keep us. And may we boldly come to that final day with eager anticipation, knowing you, God, are there calling us home. We pray these things in your name, the power of your spirit. Amen.